the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome everyone to another episode of Axe of Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey, and with me today is absolutely no one, because I'm devoting the length of this episode to my interview with Obsidian's Josh Sawyer, who directed Pillars of Eternity and is on the show to talk about how the game has come out a year later, thoughts on crowdfunding, thoughts on RPG design, and of course, some thoughts on the expansion, the White March the second part of which came out a couple weeks ago. If you missed out on Pillars of Eternity the first time, I thought it was one of my most underrated RPGs of 2015. It's really quite sweet, even if you're not traditionally into a Western RPG kind of style of game. So I highly recommend checking it out. In the meantime, um, if you go check out the site, I have a review of Twilight Princess HD out. Um, it came out today, today being Friday when I, as I record this. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. I, I like it, but obviously it has some flaws, uh, which are unrelated to the fact that it's in HD, but it's kind of the definitive version of this game. Strictly speaking, not an RPG, don't tell Jeremy, but I still think that it kind of fits in that broad cross-section of RPG fan and general interest. So go look at that. And of course, I'm doing a Nuzlocke run over on Twitch, go over to twitch.tv slash usgamernet and check that out. In the meantime, let's head over to our interview with Josh, and I'll see you on the other side. And now I'm here with Obsidian's Josh Sawyer, who has been making RPGs for quite a long time now. He recently wrapped up work on the White March Part 2, which is kind of the grand finale of Pillars of Eternity. Josh, how does it feel to be done with Pillars of Eternity after, well, several years of development at this point? Uh, yeah, I don't think, uh, it feels great, but I think that none of us really had realized until we were finished that we were actually finished. And uh, we looked back and realized it had been over three years, uh, coming up on three and a half years. So it's um it's it was an amazing experience it's something we never thought we'd be able to do and uh the community has been so helpful in obviously funding the game but also providing feedback to us throughout the course of development even after development i mean a lot of the features we put into the 3.0 patch were based on ongoing player feedback and beta feedback so overall it was it's been a great experience and we're looking forward to doing some more stuff with the IP in the future. A year ago, when I talked to you about Pillars of Eternity, this was right before it came out, you were kind of alluding to the fact that this game is so squarely in your wheelhouse. I mean, you guys have been <clears throat> making this game, this kind of game for a good 20 years. Like, you were really pumped to be getting back to the isometric RPG model. Um, a year later, the game's out, you're done. Do you still feel like this is so totally in your wheelhouse and you're super comfortable with it. Has anything changed? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really think anything has changed. I mean, there are things that we want to improve about, um, you know, kind of how we approach this type of game. There are certain things in, in our technology that we'd like to improve in the future. 
But I think that everyone on the team, whether they were experienced with this type of game or they were new to the this type of um, specifically the isometric RPG, party-based RPG, uh, I think we all had a great time. Um, we had to relearn some things in the process. But, um, you know, I think for us, role-playing is a lot of it is about the how you interact with a story, how you define who your character is as a person. I mean, obviously there's things like stats and levels and equipment and stuff like that. But um, for us, the role-playing experience can, you know, take a lot of different forms. And on the PC in a game like this, we can really focus on the storytelling and the character development. And it's been really a lot of fun. So I think that everyone has really enjoyed the experience and we want to keep doing it. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with Pillars of Eternity or maybe forgot about it, it's an isometric RPG in the tradition of Baldur's Gate and games like that from the late 90s and early 2000s, um, games that were made by Black Isle Studios and that's, and uh, studios like that. And it has it's based on a variant of the Dungeons & Dragons rules, if I'm not mistaken, but not entirely on that uh yeah, it's uh, it's not really based on D and D, but um, I think anyone who looked at it would say that it has similarities to D and D because we wanted to capture the same spirit. Like we don't use the you know the one to twenty sort of random die scale. We use a one to one hundred scale, um, and a lot of the class names are similar and things like that. And obviously, a lot of the abilities are familiar. We did that you know because people want a certain type of experience. But whenever we thought that we could make a mechanic that seemed to work better in a computer game environment versus a tabletop environment, we went in that direction. Yeah, and you relied on encounter powers and rest powers and that kind of thing, which kind of forced everybody to, I suppose, um, reserve their powers for like big moments. I know that there would be a lot of time where I'd be like, okay, I can deal with this enemy, like using just level one magic. It's all good. Oh, that's a giant party. Okay. Time to throw out a fireball or two and see what's going on. So, uh, that was was certainly the intention. (laughs) Indeed. Um, so a lot of the, the crux of the story is based around souls and that kind of thing. And your main character has, I, I believe that the main character has souls from many different lifetimes. Am I correct? Well, it's. I think it's more accurate to say that everyone sort of has some previous lives floating around in them somewhere. But in the case of your your character in Pillars of Eternity, you are um, you become awakened, which means that one of your um, previous lives starts becoming part of your waking consciousness, and it starts to interfere with your perception of reality. Um, most people never really are able to tap into or understand their previous lives, but uh, your character is one of a, a small number of people in the world who can do this, and that's what sort of starts causing problems for you. This is kind of your opportunity to create, craft your own fantasy universe um, after working on established uh, IPs for so long, like uh, it must have been like kind of a, a real weight of responsibility must have been kind of intimidating, but also liberating at the same time. Yeah, it's a difficult balancing act because we we knew in making the sort of game that we were, which is, a, you know, a nostalgia driven project that we we realistically we couldn't make something that was too bizarre. Um, <laughs> we had to make something that people would feel like, yeah, this is in the tradition of Iceman Dale and Baldur's Gate. Um, and even Planescape Torment, though it has like a lot of odd things in it, 
you know, it still is a, is, is a fantasy game. Definitely. Um, so, you know, when we were developing the world, we tried to strike this balance between having very traditional elements and then things that were new uh, from our studio or things that we like to emphasize that aren't usually emphasized necessarily in a setting like Forgot- the Forgotten Realms. And uh, that was the approach we took with it. And um, I think that in the future, you know, we don't want to just completely radically leap away from that, but we want to explore more ideas Um you know, within a fantasy setting, there's still a lot of room for new things, new ideas that uh, people haven't seen before. You hear RPG developers who create their own IPs say a lot that they've mapped out the the history of the universe for a thousand years in either direction. Did you do something similar with Pillars of Eternity? <sighs> no. Um, uh, I, uh, I actually have a degree in history. Oh, and, cool. Um, and so when I look at I look at things in a way where I feel like there's a lot of information that we need to know to understand how things developed over time. And usually what I try to do is I look at, I look at how cultures have developed over time and how I think that, you know, these fictitious cultures would develop, you know, given how we look at our own earth history. Um, And so it's not so much about defining out every single moment and every single event. It's about establishing this network of sort of behaviors and activities and social changes and thinking about how they would impact each other and how society would change based off of that. Um, But as far as like, you know, is the, you know, are all of the emperors of the Edir empire mapped out for 20 generations? No, because it's not super important. It's important to understand that they are an empire and how that empire formed. It's important to understand that it's formed from humans and elves living in close proximity so that they become culturally interwoven in a way that demands certain cultural uh, institutions like the Hemneg, which is a ceremonial wedding. Like we don't have half elves in this world, but humans and elves sometimes fall in love and they, they can join in their society, but they can't be considered officially married. So they have this sort of second class consortship. So it's thinking through things like that, that feel like this would change how the society worked and how the people behaved and things like that. Um, Otherwise, I try to leave that stuff open so that in the future, if there is something where we're like, you know, we really need to now it is now it is important to figure out who the you know emperors going back 10 generations were, then we can do that and not have to go like, oh, well, you know, we put this down in a book like five years ago, uh, just, you know, haphazardly. And now we're kind of bound by it for no reason. So our approach is to sort of fill in things as we need them while maintaining a superstructure that allows the whole thing to sort of work together and make sense if you don't mind me putting on my history nerd hat you're more of a believer in the trends and forces model than the great man model in other words definitely yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right that's the uh, nerdiest that i've gotten in this podcast for a bit and this is an rpg podcast but um looking back on the entirety of pillars of eternity uh, in retrospect what do you think ended up working the best and what aspect do you think could use more work for a potential sequel um i think the usually what i cite is sort of the overall feeling which sounds like a cop-out but i mean that's a really important thing um you know i i know that you know there are some players that would would disagree but i think for the most part the people who played the game who were familiar with the infinity engine games felt like they you know were coming back to something they were very familiar with from how the cursors looked to the sort of very solid skeuomorphic 
you know, graphic user interface that we had. Um, the way that input worked, like, felt very similar to the old games. And so it's something that we wanted people to drop into and feel like, yeah, this is, you know, this is what I've been missing. Um, I think there were things that, I think the combat pacing could be adjusted quite a bit. Uh, it was difficult to find a balance between when you have very few party members and not a lot of actions versus when you have six or, or more with animal companions uh, and you have a ton of people doing a ton of things, it becomes very, very difficult to keep up with what's going on. Um, I think something we'd like to work on in the future, uh, you know, would be things like dynamic elements within scenes. I think people really, I'm glad that people love our 2D backgrounds. Um, we put a lot of time and care into them, but I, I believe that we can do more to make our environments feel more alive um, and more reactive to things like, you know, time of day and weather and stuff like that. Just um, making the world feel more alive, I guess. And uh, yeah, I think that also we can do more with reactivity. This is something that Obsidian always strives for. So no matter how good we do, I think we always want to push the envelope of reactivity to player choices, having companions react more to what you do to, uh, to each other, to have factions react more to each other and what they do. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that really goes toward role-playing options and choices that we can still make even better. Um, I think our team did a great job with pillars, so I don't want to make it sound like I think there's a bunch of crummy stuff in there, but I, I definitely see a lot of room for improvement as do the other designers. I picked up pillars of eternity again for the first time in like a year, just recently. I reviewed it last year. I, like I said, I really enjoyed it. Um, a few things that jumped out at me after picking it up again um, that I had kind of forgotten about. I really like the the narrative scenes in between that have kind of this minimalist look, and it's a choose your own adventure, and the decisions are cho are, are the actions are kind of the results of your actions are based on your stats, mm -hmm. and I I just like that kind of interactive storytelling that you managed to put into the game. It, it really stands out to me. Um, and the other thing that kind of stood out to me is it doesn't look like a big world, but as you play it, you realize that it's really dense. Like yeah. <laughs> it feels like everybody you talk to has a quest or something that they want you to do. Um, this is especially apparent in the core game um, I'm not sure that it's quite as apparent in the beginning of the White March, which I was playing over the weekend. Um, I wonder if you could kind of speak to those elements. Sure. Um, the inspiration behind what we call scripted interactions, which are the illustrated choose your own adventure sequences, was uh, one of my favorite all-time games, which is Darklands from 1992. And that was a historical fantasy role-playing game. And they had these really cool uh, kind of like you know, pen and ink and watercolor type washes. They were really simple, but they were very evocative and they were accompanied by narrative text. And you could do the same sort of things where you could use all of your character skills or potions or pray to a saint to help you. Um, and those were always really cool sequences. So we wanted to evoke those. And in the base game, we didn't get, we didn't get as much mileage out of them as we had wanted to. So in the expansions, actually in the second part of the expansion, we added, I think the second part of the expansion has more scripted interaction panels than the rest of the game combined. So um, we recognized that people really liked them. We, we really enjoyed doing them. And once we had the resources to really put a lot of 
you know, uh, time behind it, uh, we did. And I think that they feel really good. And that's another place where we think that there's even more that we can do to make those experiences more reactive and easier to author. So, you know, I, I love those. And I think everyone on the team has really grown to love doing them too. If you don't mind and me then, jumping in really quickly, uh, sure. I just got to say that there's a scripted interaction panel on the White March Part 1 where there's a fire and you're trying to rescue a couple of people. Um, and it does just a phenomenal job of capturing this feeling that you are in a, a house with the smoke in your eyes and fire everywhere and you're not sure where to go or what decisions you should be making and you're feeling the tension of you want to rescue somebody but you don't want to actually get trapped and killed. Um, it was just a really terrific uh, sequence that really kind of brought me back to being at the table with like a really good game master who's describing kind of an event to me. Thanks. It's actually that, uh, that is probably the most complicated script interaction sequence that we have in Colors of Eternity. Um, there are so many different ways that it can go. And that, that was one of the reasons why when we looked at it, we're like, wow, this is such a cool sequence. I wish it were easier to author things <laughs> because there's so much branching. Um, but ideally, I think that giving the player a sense of tension there and, you know, I think the other thing that, that I really want to emphasize with scripted interactions is also kind of like forecasting the pros and cons of taking certain choices. Because I think that, you know, whenever we ask players to make a decision, we want to give them enough information to go like, huh, you know, like, if I try to do this, this is probably going to test my constitution. Or like, if I try to do this, I'm probably going to have to dodge. Maybe that's my dexterity or my reflexes. Like, who would be best at that? Um, so I'm really glad that people enjoyed that sequence and other sequences we put in. Um, and, uh, you know, but that's the sort of thing where once, once we authored, started authoring these really complex scripted interactions, we realized like, yeah, I bet there are, I bet there are ways we can do this even better. Um, and then the second part you had said is about the density. I think that on the, on the core game, we struggled a little bit with trying to find the right balance of density. Um, Baldur's Gate 1 a lot of people, you know, had sort of commented when when you look at the the exterior maps in, in Baldur's Gate, a lot of them are very sparsely populated. And so we didn't want to have big empty maps. Um, on the other hand, you have something like Athkatla, where if you go through the, I think it's the promenade, uh, you're constantly like tripping over quest companions. And so we, you know, we tried to sort of split the difference there. And I do think that in some places it feels like a little too dense, like there's a few too many quest givers in an area. Um, and I think that when we moved on to the White March and Stalwart, we tried to, we were a little more sensitive to that. And we tried to space things out. So you had more characters you could talk to just for the sake of talking them. Or if they were part of a quest, they weren't immediately part of a quest. And so the pacing falls a little bit better for those guys. On the flip side, it seems like one aspect of Pillars of Eternity that kind of got criticized a little bit was the stronghold. And you said that, that is actually an aspect that you would like to improve upon for the sequel. Uh, from your perspective, what exactly about the stronghold ended up not working as well as you would have liked? Um, mostly that the stronghold emphasized uh, systemic things rather than content. Uh, we, During development, we realized that we had the resources to do a stronghold. Um, there were technical complications to how we had to implement it that proved difficult to deal with. 
And as we were looking at the amount of content we needed to make to make a game that felt like it had the volume of quests and dialogues and reactivity that we wanted, uh, we realized that we didn't really have the resources to make a lot of rich content for the stronghold. We did have time to make a system for the stronghold. And so we had, you know, the prestige system or the prestige rating, the security rating, and you had your little uh, hirelings that could come and go. And we had the attacks that could be staged. And all of that was relatively easy to author. And the burden was more on system design and uh, programming to actually implement that. But that's not that satisfying because when people think about the strongholds from you know a game like Baldur's Gate 2, they think of the distinctive different strongholds and the content that is in those strongholds. And so for the patch three of the White March, we decided to revisit that and we devoted some resources to um, revising the adventure system, which were those little previously generic adventures that you got. Um, so we put a lot of lore into those unique items that have their own little stories to them. And that felt, I think, a lot better. And then we also wanted to make you feel like you really were the, um, you know, like you were the Lord of Cadnua. You were the Lord of this castle. And we did that through um, the dilemmas. So we have people that visit you and they have problems. And then you can sit in your throne with all of your companions around you and decide the fate of this, you know, whoever is appealing to you. And you have a lot of different options for how to deal with that. So it ties back into the role playing. And then we also added a quest uh called uh well, actually i can't remember the name of the quest now but it's a it's a it's a series of small quests um about you sort of defending your claim to Cadnua. and so again it makes you sort of put it actually puts you in the role of someone defending your claim um so i think really our our error or, or i shouldn't say our error it was my choice um to emphasize system over over content is what resulted in, in such a negative feeling um and so whatever you know if we make a sequel and if if we have strongholds, I think that the way to go with that is more emphasis on um, on having cool content in them rather than having them be really system, systemic and system driven. If you don't mind me saying, I I mostly enjoyed what the stronghold has to offer because I I like strongholds. Um, <laughs> but I I the one thing that kind of surprised me was it always felt really empty when I went back to it. Uh, like, I suppose my own experience, like, stems from games like Suikoden 2 or Dragon Age Inquisition, where you find this old ruin, and then as the game progresses, it, the ruin, like, evolves and changes and becomes better and better and better and gets way more crowded. I think that was the main thing, is you get so many more people in there. And that was one thing that the Stronghold kind of lacked, was that you didn't have a lot of people, say, just milling around the courtyard. but. Yeah. I suppose that was kind of difficult given that you had a small team. Um, yeah, I mean, that goes back to there are there are a couple there are technical reasons for that. And there are also just logistical problems. So um, any sort of conversation is potentially complicated and it requires someone to write those dialogues. So, um, you know, if you want if we want to load a bunch of characters up in there, especially if there are a bunch of different characters, then we have to have little barks and stuff for them, which in itself is not individually. They're not very burdensome. But when you start to add up all the characters and all the reactivity you want to have with them, then it can become pretty daunting. Uh, the other issue is is kind of how we had to stock those scenes with characters because we had stronghold attacks. Um and so there were potentially problems with having really a lot of characters loaded into a map at one time. And we realized like, oh man, if, if we, you know, like if we really start 
flooding this area with NPCs that are all pathing around and doing their AI. This could get really, really messy for people running on low-end machines. Um, and so we just decided to keep it relatively Spartan, which again, you know, was uh, an unfortunate choice. We understand that people would rather see that be very rich and alive and reactive. Switching over to the expansions really quickly, what was behind the original decision to split them into two parts? Um, the thinking there was uh, very sort of practical. We we knew from our experience working on other expansion packs and DLCs that the attachment rate, meaning uh, you know the percentage of people who will buy an expansion versus the base game, the potential attachment rate goes down pretty quickly after about after a few months. And so we, you know, we thought, well, we know we're going to make a fairly big expansion. We're not making a little teeny DLC. So if we're doing that, if that's going to take five or six months, that's way past where we want to get something out to people. Um, so it did cause some logistical uh, nightmares for us, unfortunately. But the decision was based off of that, just that practical understanding that if we go five or six months without releasing something, then people are going to kind of forget about it and sort of stop paying attention. So we just tried to find a way to have one continuous story, one you know set of areas that all felt thematically connected, um, but split them into two parts. And so that was really the thinking behind it. What are your thoughts on the criticism that the expansions ended up being kind of backloaded with a lot of the best stuff being reserved for part two, um, and part one just being kind of a, a dungeon crawl? Um, I think that's reasonable. Um, like I said, it, it, this causes logistical problems for us because it's it's difficult it's difficult to conceive of these things in two parts but being one continuous whole. Um, and since we were trying to build toward some you know big uh, climax at the end of the second part, uh, it was difficult to try to find the right you know, the right emotional peak for the end of the first part. And so I could see where people could say like, oh, you know, it feels, and it is much grander at the end. Like once you find out all these huge, you know, supernatural forces are involved, um, I think the stakes become a lot more interesting, um, especially when you get the the visions at the beginning of the White March part two, it, it becomes much more obvious that there's something really bad going on. So I think that's a fair criticism. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's a bad one. Would you do it again? Would I split it or would I... Would, would you I split it something? again? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's... it's If you just said, hey, you know, it doesn't really matter timeline-wise when it comes out. No. <laughs> if you just... If, you, if it really did not matter sales-wise or review-wise or how people sort of like received it when it came out, then no, I wouldn't split it because it does make it logistically a lot more complicated for us. Um, for the area designers, for production, it makes it more difficult for QA. It makes it more difficult for the narrative designers who are trying to write story beats and quests and things around the split in the middle of the expansion. Um, but, you know, I don't, like I said, I, I have seen the numbers myself on various games, and it is true that the attention really can drop off very quickly. So it is, it's, you know, we, we made the choice, and this is how it wound up. And I am glad, though, I am very proud of the team and what they did um, on, the, on the second part of the expansion, um, because I feel like the response from the community has been very positive. So even though splitting it caused some problems, uh, I'm glad that in the end, people seem to enjoy, enjoy the experience overall. So in 
patch 3.0, you introduce, I believe, story time mode. Yeah. Um, could you speak a little bit toward the thought process in introducing this new mode? So, yeah. So when we did the Kickstarter, a lot of our optional modes were geared around increasingly um, increasingly difficult sort of modes. So we have the regular difficulty modes, then we have Path of the Damned, which is, you know, sort of overload. And then we have expert mode that turns off a lot of the helper features. We have Trial of Iron. So we had already had a big focus on making the game more challenging. And in the patches, in the like 2.0 to 3.0 range, we had put a focus on more hard counters in certain circumstances, or at least the option of some hard counters. So, you know, creatures with immunities, um, uh, creatures that had affliction immunities or damage immunities to sort of force the player's hand into adapting a little bit more. So after all that, we figured, you know, we had continuously tried to ramp up the difficulty of the game. And we knew, though, that there were a lot of people who, you know, whether it was they're not experienced with this type of game or um, they're just not very good at this type of game or they don't really care about the combat that much, they were still having a lot of difficulty even on easy difficulty with all the helper features turned on. So uh, we talked internally about how complex it would be to make something like story time mode. And it turned out to be, you know, like a couple of days of work, maybe like it wasn't really that hard. Um, and we figured that there would be a lot of people that would say, you know, I tried playing this before and it was really difficult and I never quite got the hang of it. And hopefully our, you know, improvements that we've made over time, make it easier to play the game in terms of feedback. But, uh, you know, if people are just, if they just want to go through the story and they want to have like a big adventure, then story time mode is for those people. You know, it's the game does not like we do want our hardcore fans to feel challenged. And it's very difficult to find ways to really challenge some of these players because a lot of them are extremely, extremely good. Um, but, you know, there's a big spectrum of people who want to play this type of game. So story time or as a lot of people on Twitter call it dad mode uh, <laughs> seems to, you know, there's there's a definitely an audience for it. This is a trend in general in uh, RPGs. Just the other day, I wrote an article about how people should be willing to tackle Fire Emblem Fates' uh, classic mode, which has the permadeath and everything, mm -hmm. because intelligent systems introduced casual mode, and surprise, surprise, the series suddenly became a lot more became a lot less intimidating for a lot of people, yeah. and a lot of people seem to prefer casual mode, which disables. Uh, permanent death. Um, is this kind of a, a function of the fact that gaming in general has just become a lot broader uh, and it's appealing to a broader swath of people? Um, and so RPG developers, which is a traditionally hardcore uh, genre, are just trying to reach out and get as many people as possible in this much broader um, environment? I think that's part of it. I will say, though, that I think that um, maybe in the past five or six years, I've seen a lot of games that they really, really emphasize the ease of play um, at the at the cost of the hardcore play. And personally, I feel like the heart of RPGs is something that is more of a hardcore kind of serious thing. And so I personally would never want to I wouldn't say never. I mean, it would really have to depend on the on the specific property being used. But um, like something like like South Park, I don't think needs to be a hardcore RPG. But something like Pillars, I feel like at its heart, it needs to be kind of it needs to be crunchy and it needs to, you know, really make people kind of get down and think about it at its heart. 
but allowing people to play it in a more approachable way, I think is, is good because, um, you know, it might be that there are newer players or they're more casual players, uh, people who are new to the genre. When people call it dad mode, it's not that they're, they haven't played RPGs. They're just like, I'm a dad. Like I don't have time to, you know, spend half an hour in a fight because I'm, I'm pausing every, you know, 10 frames as like another action cues off. Um, because some of the, some of the fights in the infinity engine game and some of them in pillars of eternity, really, even though they're real time with pause, you're really microing your characters to a very high degree. And there are people who are just like, man, I'm tired. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta go to bed at 10 and get up and take my kids to school or whatever. And so I think it's just, you know, recognizing that there are people who they have other parts of their lives that are important to them, but they want to enjoy these games as well. And if we can do that in a way that does not make the spirit of the game feel worse, then I think we should support it. I was going to say that it was interesting trying to square the fact that Pillars of Eternity at its heart is a nostalgia project. It's appealing to a group of fans who've been playing these games for 20 years at this point and you're introducing stuff that is very much meant for a broader audience. And it was, it seemed like in some ways those were in conflict with one another because it seems like a lot of people who did not grow up with these games are like actively intimidated by a game like Pillars of Eternity and are kind of afraid to approach it, even if you do put in these kind of casual features. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, obviously, if someone is just really put off by the whole vibe of it, um, I don't think a game should be made to necessarily appeal to everyone. I certainly don't think that RPGs need to be made to appeal to everyone. But I do think that what I've often said in the past is if you have someone who really likes, like, the idea of the game, the look of the game, the style of the game, uh, if you can support them being able to play the game in a way that doesn't you know, detract from how other people play the game, then do that. Um, I think that developers can run into problems where they're trying to appeal to people that, you know, like inherently don't like what, you know, you're doing. So for example, in Pillars, we kind of, you know, it's kind of like, you got to like some reading, like you, there's, there's just going to be reading in the game and uh, you don't have to read every single word of dialogue. You don't have to read every single lore book. But if you just don't like reading, Pillars of Eternity is not a game that you're going to like. And so we're not going to bend over backwards to make the the no reading version of the game um, because those people, you know, just inherently there's so much to the game that they're not going to enjoy anyway. Uh, whereas with combat, I think a lot of people are like, I like the idea of this. I like the high fantasy elements. I like the look and the feel of it. I'm just bad at it. <laughs> and so that's where we go like, oh, okay, like we can... And and really, like I said, it was not a lot of work for us to implement this mode, especially after implementing all the super hardcore stuff. Uh, so given that, it just seemed like this is easy. It does not make the game any worse for the people that want a bigger challenge. It just makes it easier for the people that are having a hard time or they just want to relax. They don't want to stress out about it. For me personally, I did not grow up with these kinds of games. I grew up playing Final Fantasy and that kind of game thing. Um, and I didn't really get into Western RPGs until eh, 2009, 2010. And a lot of that was to do with work, where it was just like, I have to really start to understand this totally other side of RPGs that I didn't really have a lot of experience with. And I ended up starting to play like Dragon Age Origins and that kind of thing. And I remember uh, friends of mine who had grown up with these games saying, 
yeah, Dragon Age Origins is great, but man, you need those six uh part six member parties and that kind of thing. And then so for me, playing a game like Pillar, Pillars of Eternity was sort of a a step up, if you if you could say. Um a game like Dragon Age Origins is like the introductory and then Pillars of Eternity and Shadowrun and Wasteland 2 are like the okay, well you've taken your first step into a larger world, now you're moving on up is that kind of a an impression that you share yeah i think it's interesting um it's uh it's i think it's very interesting that six party members has become not in every single um ip for western rpgs but uh you know personally i think that six party members in the infinity engine games and in pillars of eternity can become pretty unwieldy um mm. it it can make the combats feel really difficult to manage and track um, but yeah, there are a lot of people that think like, no, six is it. Um, and I think a lot of the nostalgia for the game, you know, like people will look at certain things and whether they sort of consciously do this or unconsciously, they favor the stuff that was the way it was before. So six party members, six attributes, um, you know, classes are named the way that they're named and they behave the way that they behave. Uh, and so it's always been a difficult balancing act for us to, um, you know, find something that does, you know, doesn't violate that nostalgia in a way that makes people go like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? This does not, this is not right. This doesn't feel right. Um, but not being slavishly devoted to, to tradition, which can be a difficult, uh, sort of process. But, you know, Dragon, I, I guess one thing with pillars versus like Dragon Age Origins, at least, is, um, you know, the, like with pillars, we knew we were going to be a PC only game. And there are certain interface problems that you can have on a console that you don't have on a PC. So, like, managing a lot of characters can be a lot more difficult on a console. Um, you know, certain interfaces can just be really difficult to manage on a console. They're not that difficult to manage on a PC with a huge resolution. Um, so, you know, we knew that we were making something on a platform that is, yeah, more or less just inherently the audience is more hardcore and we didn't have a lot of the limitations that if you're making a cross-platform RPG that you might also have. And, you know, we made it for a, you know, what it's it's strange to say like over $4 million is a small budget, but it's a relatively small budget. Um, and so we can afford to be a little more niche and a little more, uh, you know, focused on the hardcore market. I was going to say that I personally am just a, a bigger fan of having more party members because when you shrink it down to four, you start getting in a situation where you have to be like, well, I have to have a magic user. Okay, well, and I have to have a healer. So that basically takes up half my party. And I start to lose a lot of flexibility. And I just like to have as much, as many options as possible when I'm uh, building up my team. I think that's a, ver a very good point. And it's something that I don't think we were entirely successful with it, but it's something that we tried to do with the Pillars of Eternity class design is move away from the necessity of a nuclear party. Um, you know, needing to have like, I got to have a fighter because fighters are the only guys that can dish out damage and take damage. I got to have a rogue because rogues are the only characters that can pick locks and find traps and remove traps. I got to have a cleric because clerics are the only characters that have reasonably good healing spells. And I got to have a wizard because those are the only characters that have good crowd control. Um, so with pillars, we try to move away from that and separate some of those things out. So, for example, skills, um, 
picking locks and finding traps. Rogues are better at it, but you absolutely do not need a rogue. Uh, there wasn't even a rogue NPC in the base game. Um, you know, you could either make a rogue yourself or you could just emphasize those skills with the character that you built. Um, we also tried to give the player many more options for healing. Um, the reason why we have the endurance and health split pool system is so that when the fight ends, there is a long-term consequence for getting smacked around, but everyone goes back to full endurance. So you can keep fighting. You don't have to sit there and cast like, oh yeah, I need a cleric because if I get wounded, I need to heal all these guys right now, or I'm going to die in the next fight. So we try to do stuff like that to encourage people, you know, like if, because the other thing too, is that a lot of the, the player's choices about companions are based off of just how they feel about them. So if you don't like a dare, then you don't have to have a dare. If you don't like Durance, you don't have to have Durance. And there are certain things that those characters and those classes do um, that are very valuable and they are distinctive, but, you know, trying to move away from this like strict necessity, like you've got to have the nuclear party. And then after you have the nuclear party, Slots five and six are your are your optional slots. I'd rather say pretty much all six slots are are whatever you want to put in there, and there'll be different sort of drawbacks to doing that. Um, uh, one of the one of my uh, coworkers I think ran with a six chanter party, and there were parts of the game where the six chanters were incredibly powerful, and areas where they're incredibly weak and just getting killed all the time. He tried six uh, priests. He tried six uh, wizards. Um, you can try all sorts of weird parties, which is something we really wanted to encourage. Um, I'm kind of running on there, but that was a big focus for us is just trying to make sure that uh, the classes felt good, but they didn't feel like you absolutely strictly needed to have the traditional D&D style nuclear party. I felt like the classes generally felt good, especially the spellcasters. Uh, the only class that wasn't really working for me was the ranger. Um, just because I, I liked being able to mark enemies and, Having, um, you know, animal companions is always nice, but when it came down to it, um, they just weren't uh, pulling their weight in the same way as, well, pretty much everybody else. Yeah, that was something that in subsequent patches, we improved rangers a lot, but at launch, they had um, they had a lot of deficiencies. Uh, the, the animal companions didn't really improve uh, over time, which was a big, big drawback, and a lot of their damage values were not, um, they just weren't up to snuff, and so we did try to really focus on retuning them. And I still think that they require a little bit of finesse to play um, because you do really have to coordinate between the animal companion and the ranger to make the, you know, to really get the synergistic bonuses. But when you do, they can be really tough. But I, I, I don't disagree that, especially at launch and until about maybe patch 2.4 uh, or 2.04, that rangers, uh, they, the animal companion felt like a liability in a lot of cases and their damage output you know, didn't really make up for it. Yeah. And I'm the kind of person who always picks the ranger because I just <laughs> like bows and I like animals. Yep. So kind of a rock and a hard place there. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So uh, getting back to a point you made a little bit earlier, you said that you had no interest in bringing pillars of eternity to console. Is that still the case? Well, I mean, I, I know a lot of people have asked about it, but I just know that based on the interface limitations that we have, that it would be very difficult. Um, this type of game, well, if you really think about the roots of, of Baldur's Gate, uh, which was the first Infinity Engine game, that was born out of really an RTS, like Bioware was building an RTS, and then they converted it over to this real-time with pause role-playing game. And so a lot of the underlying mechanics are very RTS-like. And 
RTSs sort of traditionally, like they're very mouse and keyboard driven. Um, there's lots of different ways you can input. You have to move very quickly. There's a lot of units to select and you have to be very precise about selecting them, uh, which is why you don't really see a ton of uh, RTSs on consoles. Or when you do, they take very radically unexpected forms like Pikmin. I mean, Pikmin is, that's an RTS. Um, but like, you know, you're controlling these things in such a bizarre way compared to a mouse and keyboard, like a traditional RTS. So given that, um, you know, I've always thought it's a, it would be a real struggle to adapt something that's so focused on a big party with a lot of abilities, um, you know, with an isometric perspective. I think those are big, big challenges. If we could figure out a way to do it, that would be super cool. I've just always been very skeptical about um, making it feel good. I, that's why, but I do think that tablets tend to bridge that gap a little more easily. So when I see things like the Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition on tablets, that's super cool because the tablet, you know, it's not quite the same as using a mouse and keyboard, but you get a lot of that fast response and fast selection uh, that would be difficult with a console controller um, on a tablet. So I think there are ways that we could, you know, see how it could work on other platforms. But consoles are one of the ones that always just kind of, uh, as soon as they start thinking about the implications, it looks really daunting. So Pillars of Eternity was part of this, like, first wave of nostalgia RPGs, you could call it, I guess, that also yeah. included Wasteland 2 and Shadowrun. And there was a lot of promise going on with them uh, when they were being kickstarted. Lots of, like, yes, these are, like, old-school, hardcore, really in-depth, like, we are going to put in everything that we've always wanted to put into these games. It's going to be great. Now that the first wave of of those kinds of RPGs are out, do you feel like um, they've lived up to their promise? Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see where people might criticize any one of, any one of the, you know, you can criticize Wasteland 2, criticize Pillars, um, you know, criticize Shadowrun. But, I mean, they, you know, we all, all of us tried to make pretty, you know, genuine um, traditional experiences. And I think that, you know, regardless of the flaws that, that, you know, our games had, I think that we did what we set out to do. And I certainly believe that we can improve um, and make better games for people in the future. But um, I was really happy that, uh, you know, especially the RPGs coming out really seemed to be hitting the mark for what people wanted. Um, yeah. That is, I, and so I was, I was very worried because it's such, it's such a huge burden for us. Um, to know that people have put so much money and so much passion just as, you know, as fans and backers into the success of a project. Um, if you really fundamentally misstep, I mean, that's, you're really, not only are you disappointing all those people who, um, you know, backed your game and sort of had passion in that, but it also, um, it harms faith in developers. It harms faith in crowdfunding. And so it was very important to us that, you know, we did this the right way and that we came out with something that we felt was genuinely good and that people would really enjoy and that it lived up to their expectations. And for you guys, uh, the margin for error is even smaller just because these games are made for the hardcore fans. You're going to just have a lot harder time pulling in the people who, you know, didn't grow up with these games don't have a lot of nostalgia for them. They're going to be the ones relying on word of mouth. So you must have been feeling like 
this walking this tightrope of okay well we got to make this game really great to make sure that it's a success because there's just not a lot of margin for error no there's not a lot of margin for error and there's a whole generation of role-playing gamers that have you know come onto the scene post infinity engine game so um you know their sort of understanding and expectation of what a fantasy rpg is is more influenced by neverwinter nights um neverwinter nights 2 uh, maybe it's more influenced by games like Skyrim, stuff like that, uh, which wouldn't necessarily seem like it's compatible with an isometric RPG. But, you know, people just sort of conflate their experiences and then sort of project them onto, you know, what they're what they're looking at. So, uh, yeah, we were trying to really, you know, like there's the I mean, I when I worked at Black Isle Studios, at first I wasn't a developer. I was uh, I was in the web department and I was a website designer and a forum moderator. And so a lot of the people that are on the Obsidian forums right now who are, are, are were our backers, um, they were active on the Black Isle forums back in the late 90s and early 2000s. So a lot of these folks have been around for a while and, you know, they have really high expectations. But, you know, I've seen, you know, like a new generation of people come in who are just as interested, just as excited, but their expectations are slightly different. So, yeah, we're dealing with, you know, kind of two generations of gamers and we're also dealing with people who... They never played these sort of games, but the idea of a fantasy RPG is cool. And so maybe if they see something that looks neat and they have a bunch of people recommend it, maybe they'll play it. So it's that's make that's probably like the least important group. But it's worth saying that, you know, this game and this series can't survive just on the super duper hardcore fans. Um, like we could not have made this game without them. Absolutely. But uh, it has to keep going. Like if the future is going to support games of this type. Then we have to uh, we have to find uh, new blood who is like really jazzed about this style of game um, while staying true to the spirit because th- I think that's the important thing is we can change lots of little bits and pieces but there's a point at which you've changed enough where the spirit of the game has changed it doesn't really feel like it's done in the style or the or the or the I guess just the spirit is the right word of the inspiration and that's something we don't want to do so we want to continue to you know adapt and bring in new people, but we don't want to stray away from our roots. Well, I think you got a new convert in me just because <laughs> I, the things that I liked about Pillars of Eternity were kind of universal. I, I really liked the art. Um, I thought that the the battle system worked actually pretty well. Um, I found the story mysterious and interesting. And I guess I've just developed an appreciation for a lot of different types of RPGs. So even though I didn't have that really nostalgic grounding, I felt like it stood on its own just as a good RPG in general. It didn't lean on that nostalgic element. And that's really kind of the key, isn't it? Is just being like, all right, well, these are the ingredients for a good RPG. We've made good RPGs in the past. Uh, Let's go do it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about making a good game. And, uh, you know, we just always sort of, we do this sort of leveling check where we go, you know, does this feel right? Does this feel like, again, it's in the spirit? Um, if we've changed something, have we changed something too much? Does it, you know, does it does it strike a wrong note? That's the thing. It's like when you start it up and you start going in, are you like, ah, this doesn't, like, this doesn't feel right at all? Um, which I know is a very abstract thing and it's more kind of emotion and reaction based. But I mean, that's a big part of playing games is emotional response and your experience. So, you know, we we could have said, we just want to make an awesome RPG and it's going to be anything, but we didn't say that. We said we were going to make a spiritual successor to the Infinity Engine games. 
So, you know, hitting that right note while make while focusing on making the sort of RPGs that Obsidian really loves making uh, is about finding that balance. But at the same time, it must have been pretty frustrating to be overshadowed by Witcher 3, which came out a month later and ended up just sucking all of the oxygen out of the RPG space for like oh, the next month six later. months. Thanks for coming out a month later. I don't care. <laughs> Well, it's it's not fair because Witcher 3, obviously, it's being made for a AAA audience, has, like, way more resources at their disposal than you do. It's coming across PC and all of the consoles, and it's just, it's going to naturally demand a lot more attention. I ended up calling Pillars of Eternity the most un, one of the most underrated games of 2015 at the end of our year retrospective because it felt like I was the only one talking about it, and it was... Um, uh, it would have been nicer to, uh, for, uh, sorry, it's tough that these games are expected to compete on an even footing with a game like Witcher 3, even though, honestly, it can't. Well, yeah, I guess I would say there are a couple things I would say there. One is, I think that the press and fans were very generous to us in terms of how, how the game was reviewed, how it was received. Um I, you know, the game didn't, you know, we were funded by Kickstarter. So, you know, it was already paid for. We made it. Um, you know, we, it was a much, it was a small team working for two and a half years. So our expectations of sales and stuff like that were relatively modest. It didn't need to sell millions and millions of units to be successful. Um, also, Witcher 3 is an amazing game. <laughs> and, yes. and Witcher 2 is super cool. And the Witcher, the first Witcher was awesome. Like they're building on, you know, two games of great stuff. Uh, I saw that game, you know, for, you know, years before, uh, you know, it came out and I knew it was going to be really impressive and really awesome. And I knew they were putting tons of work into it. So, I mean, it's not frustrating being overshadowed by a game that is tremendously good. It would be frustrating being overshadowed by a game where I was like, God, why does anyone like this? But I mean, when I look at The Witcher 3, I'm like, this is a great game. It looks beautiful. It's awesome. It has high production values. It's the third game in a series. Um, and like I said, like we got great. This The Pillars of Eternity is the highest rated game that Obsidian has made. Um, and, you know, we're really grateful that the press and that backers, you know, responded as positively to it as they did. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is weird when you see individual gamers sort of expecting them to compete in the same way because they're really you know, there are different budgets, there are different price points. Um, you know, there there are some different expectations there. I think most players, though, recognize what Pillars is trying to do, and it's not trying to do the things that that Witcher Three is trying to do, and they can just, they can coexist. It's not it's not an issue. So, all right, last question. Obsidian obviously was in kind of a, a tough place in 2012 or thereabouts after Stick of Truth, but between Pillars of Eternity. Um, have things kind of stabilized a bit for you guys? And are you planning on mostly focusing on uh, isometric RPGs and games like Pillars of Eternity going forward? Or are you going to try and spread out and get back into AAA development? Well, um, we're certainly way, way better than we were back in, um, <laughs> back when we did the Kickstarter. Uh, so in that sense, like things are are leaps and bounds better. The company is at the biggest it's ever been. I think we're, I think we're over 200 employees now pretty easily. Um, the majority of the company right now is working on armored warfare, which I think took a lot of, it took me by surprise when we started working on it, but that's turned out to be a very unlikely, but very cool project for Obsidian to work on. Um, 
But I think that uh, I think that if you were to ask Fergus, and it's really you know Fergus is our CEO. Um, you know, we we love making traditional RPGs. Um, I think there's a lot of cool stuff that comes with working in AAA games. Um, but for us, it's kind of about like what's the opportunity look like? Like what's the IP? Uh, what's the team size? You know, how many teams do we have going? There are a lot of there are a lot of sort of questions to ask about that. But one thing that I I think is really cool is that so many different avenues for gaming have opened up that now Obsidian, you know, we've made console games. Uh, we made, you know, Armored Warfare is a PC tank MMO, which is crazy. I never thought we would make a, an MMO, period, much less a tank, uh, you know, PvP MMO game. Um, you know, we're making PC Linux Mac isometric traditional games that we made 15 years ago. Uh, and we're working on the Pathfinder card game for, you know, tablets and, and stuff. And so, there are a lot of different team sizes that a company like Obsidian can support. And so I think that the possibilities are actually a lot more open than they were, you know, five or six years ago, five or six years ago, it looked like you were doing cross platform console development with big teams. And that was pretty much it. And that's also when you saw a lot of companies going out of business and, you know, that was a scary time. I mean, honestly, you know, Game developers, uh, you know, like we have really cool jobs and when things look good, it can be very rewarding. Um, when things are going bad and the industry is in a downturn, it can be terrifying. It can be extremely unstable. It can be frustrating. Uh, so I think I feel now that we're in a much better position than we have been in years. So. And now you're in a position where you can make the RPGs that you want and support yourself. I mean, that alone is probably a huge improvement. It is incredibly valuable to own an intellectual property. It's not, I mean, like any independent developer, all we really, I mean, when you get right down to it, a company, a company, like the video game company is the people who work for it that you don't control. Like, you know, any of us could leave or take another job or go somewhere. It's also the, you know, the material things that we have, but, but that's not worth that much. But then beyond that is the intellectual property that we develop and we own. And in the past, we've always either worked on other people's intellectual property which can be satisfying in its own way, but it's not ours to do stuff with. Or we work on an intellectual property that becomes someone else's. Like we're making an intellectual property for another company and it becomes theirs. Um, so yeah, with Pillars of Eternity, this is our first opportunity that we've had to develop an intellectual property that is ours to do with as we see fit, which is why, you know, we've come out with, you know, those short stories. Um, we have uh, the Pillars of Eternity card game lords of the eastern reach that's coming out and that's a that's a traditional tabletop game that we've um worked with zero radius games on and you know it's it's really cool to be able to take this in the direction that we want to take it in and not have to worry about well it's not ours we don't really get to decide what we want to do with it or how we can change it and things like that for us it's about you know listening to the fans seeing the things that they like that they didn't like where they'd like to see the stories taken where they'd like to see the gameplay taken and then dreaming up what the next generation of games can be for those folks. And I look forward to seeing what the next generation of those games will end up being. Thank In the you. meantime, Josh Sawyer, your game Pillars of Eternity is currently available on Steam and elsewhere. You can check out a review over on US Gamer. Um, I will probably be writing a little bit more about it within the next week or two. Look forward to it. But in any case, Josh, thanks for dropping by and good luck going forward. Thank you so much, Kat. I appreciate it. Pillars of Eternity, everyone. Really good game. 
really captures that Dungeons and Dragons feel. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So if you haven't checked it out, and chances are you probably haven't because while I think it was successful, it kind of flew under the radar, I would certainly check it out. It just, uh, like it, like we discussed, like the narrative sequences in particular, where you're kind of doing your little choose-your-own-adventure moments, like really old school, but really cool. Uh, definitely a pure RPG experience. As for what we're going to do next week, I honestly have no idea. Um, GDC is coming up really quickly, and we are going to... We're in the middle of prepping for that, and there are a lot of events going on. So honestly, everything's kind of up in the air. I'm. We are doing a pretty cool project, though, next week, where we rank literally every Zelda ever made, including the spinoffs. And I don't know, Zelda's, like I said, not really an RPG, but for want of anything better to talk about, it might be fun to get the gang on the on the pod and have them talk a little bit about some of their favorite Zeldas. Uh, Barring that, though, maybe uh, we'll find something else that's interesting to talk about. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us. As always, you can find us on iTunes. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Find us on Stitcher or wherever else podcasts are sold. Um, Yeah, like I said, drop us a review and... Tell your friends because uh, we need to spread the good gospel of RPGs to all of the people. But I've been Cap Bailey. Thanks for listening to us. And until next time, happy adventuring. Thank you.